Well, good morning and welcome to chapel. There are a lot of activities going on this week. Uh, obviously, the Alana event. And I always, last semester, I'd mentioned something that's happening over the weekend and you'd get a round of applause and thank me for mentioning it. And then I'd get emails, well, you didn't mention my event. So I've sh- shied away from mentioning events because I don't like the angry hate email that I get. It wasn't hate email, but it was. But let me just tell you a couple of quick things. First, this is a red carpet Friday, so we have a lot of guests with us. Can we welcome our guests that are with us today? It is good to have you uh, with us, and they got to hear Dr. Ayer last night. Uh, Dr. Ayer is, will be speaking here in chapel. I'll introduce him in a moment. He's from Yale uh, University, and we here at ENC uh, know Yale University as a fallback school if you don't get into ENC. So just keep that in mind. Uh, if you don't get into ENC, you could always fall back on Yale. That's fine. Uh, several activities uh, this week. Spange and Willie are continuing their Spirit Week. It's Spirit Day. They're doing a decorating party, pep rally. Be sure to vote SGA primary elections. There is a great play, the Bible Women's Project, tonight and tomorrow at 7.30. I got to see it last night. It's an excellent production. And to the men of the group, to the men, I don't know if you know this, but you're allowed to go to that. Uh, So please go and support uh, this uh, production, and I'm sure you'll learn a great deal. Well, we have a basketball game tomorrow against a school named Gordon uh, College. Women play at 1 o'clock, and for our visiting students, that's our sign of love towards the Gordon community. We, uh, we love them very much. Uh, so uh, our sister college, Gordon, 1 o'clock, the women, men at 3 o'clock. Tomorrow night, there's a winter, winter formal, the Alana Food for Thought Sunday at 6.30, and Oscar Senior Superlatives. There's an Oscar party, 7 p.m. in the calf. So you have a full weekend, and we possibly have another winter storm coming in tomorrow night. So it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great, great weekend. Well, I want to introduce our chapel speaker, then our chapel team will lead us in worship through song. Um, as we begin our uh, time together, Dr. Carlos Ayer is our chapel speaker. Many of you got to hear his lecture last night. Uh, many of you heard his bio. He specializes in the social, intellectual, religious, and cultural history of late medieval and early modern Europe, with a strong focus on both Protestant and Catholic reformations, the history of popular piety, and the history of death. Before joining the Yale faculty in 1996, he taught at St. John's University in Minnesota, University of Virginia, and was a member of the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton for two years. Uh, but in chapel today, I wanted, we'd like to get to know a little bit more about uh, their personal life. He's been married to Jane for 31 years. Uh, he says she doesn't, her name is Jane Eyre. She doesn't like jokes about that, so don't laugh. Uh, so he's been married 31 years. They have two boys, uh, 26 and 20, and a do- 24-year-old daughter. He loves long-distance biking. And uh, I said, what else do you want these students to know about you as we get to hear from you this morning? He said, on a very important point, I was very impressed with this. This is the first time I've had a chapel speaker mention this. He says, please let them know that I have failed on numerous occasions. And then even there's been even recent failure in my life where applying to a certain program and, and didn't get in. And he says, it's important that they know that, that just because, you know, I teach it at Yale and other things of great publishing, even his first book that he published, War Against the Idols, he says he has a a folder several inches thick of rejection letters from that. And so he wanted me to share that with you. But I also want to pray for him this morning. Uh, Just a few months ago, he was in a biking accident and uh, has some short-term memory loss and uh, is struggling uh, with that, uh, but still wanted to be here today and is doing well. Did a great lecture today. So as we begin this time of prayer this morning, let us also pray for Dr. Ayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing and privilege it is to gather in your name and worship you. Uh, We thank you for our guests that are with us today. We pray your blessing upon them. Uh, We pray for this weekend and all the events and all the activities where students have worked so hard, whether on the courts or 
on the stage or uh, leading student groups and organizations. I thank you for their faithfulness, and I thank you for their love for you in this community. So I pray your blessing upon their efforts this weekend. Keep us safe as uh, another winter storm possibly approaches. Be glorified in every note that is sung, every prayer that is offered, and every word that is spoken. And we pray your blessing upon Dr. Ayer as he shares with us this morning, share some of his story. Uh, We also pray for your healing waters to flow through every aspect of his body. Heal, revive, renew, we pray in the name of Jesus. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Talk about a hard act to follow. Uh, Tough challenge. Well, uh, I understand that some of you uh, were assigned one of my memoirs, Learning to Die in Miami, but uh, the rest of you who haven't read it, uh, what is this about? Uh, It's a memoir. It's a story of of my life. I've written two memoirs, one that traces my life from birth in Havana, Cuba, to the day I left Cuba, April 6, 1962, without my parents. The second one traces uh, my life as an orphan in the United States from April 6, 1962, until basically when I was reunited with my mother in uh, November of 1965, ages and ages ago. Why should I be here talking to you about this? Those are two books I wasn't supposed to write because I'm a historian, and historians are not supposed to write about themselves. They're supposed to write about the past. So sometimes when I speak in high schools, I uh, entitle my talk, When Doing the Wrong Thing is the Right Thing. And some of the teachers get mad at me. They get even madder when I tell them that I had no outline for my memoirs. (laughs) And even madder still when I say I didn't rewrite a single page. And I sold my books. I sold the first draft without any revisions. Second memoir, however, there's one chapter I had to keep revising over and over and over again. And my wife is my best critic. She kept saying, no, this is not good enough. And it was a chapter that had to deal with my conversion. I was born and raised Catholic. I was baptized as an infant. But I hated religion. Churches scared me. I found... Jesus Christ, immensely frightening when I was a child. But about the age of 14, exactly 50 years ago, just about, I saw the light. Let me read to you the preamble or preface to my first memoir entitled Waiting for Snow in Havana. This is the last thing I wrote. And I wrote it in a fit of anger because I learned that the publisher was not going to allow me to publish my memoir as fiction, as a novel, but instead as nonfiction. So then everyone would know who the story was about. And there are many unpleasant things that I relate in there. But here's what I wrote in in a fit of anger. So you see, anger is good sometimes. This is not a work of fiction but the author would like it to be. We improve when we become fiction, each and every one of us. And when the past becomes a novel, our memories are sharpened.
Memory is the most potent truth. Show me history, untouched by memories, and you show me lies. Show me lies, not based on memory, and you show me the worst lies of all. If all the characters in this book are fictional, none of them know it yet. All resemblances to actual persons were preordained before the creation of the world. Matters little that the names don't always match. A reference to the fact that the lawyer for the publisher made me change some people's names so I and the publisher would not be sued. All the incidents and dialogue come straight from God's imagination, as does the author himself and the reader. Still, all of us are responsible for our own actions. Not even Fidel, Fidel Castro, is exempt from this, nor Che, nor Che's chauffeur, nor his mansion, nor the many Cubans who soiled their pants before they were shot to death, nor the 14,000 children who flew away from their parents, nor the love and desperation that caused them to fly. That last reference is to the program that brought me here to the United States at the age of 11. It later acquired the name, a journalist came up with this really stupid name, Peter Pan Airlift, Pedro Pan Airlift, because the kids were flying. Yeah, sure. Unlike the Peter Pan story, you know, where you go to Never Never Land, you remain a child forever. We were exactly the reverse. We all had to become adults right after our flight when we landed in the United States. 14,000 children sent by their parents to the United States in a desperate move to rescue them from a totalitarian nightmare. Now, most of you here are very fortunate to you know, have lived in the United States most of your life or all of your life. You have no idea what it's like to live under a dictatorship, especially a totalitarian dictatorship that uh, actually persecutes people who practice their faith. Many, if not most of us, 14,000 children were sent to the United States by our parents because in Cuba, by 1960, children who were brought up in a religious household, children who were taken to church by their parents or to synagogue, would not be allowed to continue their education past age 16. They were also ostracized and given bad grades. And persecution of children is still very common in Cuba. Why would any parent do that? And I've asked myself the question a million times. Would I do this to my children if I were in the same situation? When our parents put us on those planes, they didn't know if they were ever going to see us again. And we didn't know if we were ever going to see our parents again. As it turned out, I never saw my father ever again because he was not allowed to leave. And by the time he started to, by the time they released him and allowed him to leave, he died. It's a great sacrifice my parents made. I put myself in their place and I say to myself, what must it have been like for them to walk past my room where my brother and I slept? every day and see it empty and not know if they were going to ever see us again. This is the sacrifice parents make sometimes. Doing the wrong thing is the right thing. I am immensely grateful 
for the opportunity I had to leave that nightmare and come here at the age of 11. So I wrote these two memoirs. Why? Even though they could count against me professionally. When I wrote the first one, uh, I wrote it in desperation. Almost, uh, I was almost crazy with, with anger and rage. And what was my anger all about? My anger was about the fact that by age 50, when I started writing this book, I could not stand anymore to hear time after time after time after time. When people learned I was from Cuba, they'd tell me what a nice place it was and how wonderful the Cuban Revolution was. Worse than that came, uh, you may remember the story. You were all too young, I think, to actually soak it in. A little Cuban boy that showed up off the coast of Florida, Elian Gonzalez. His mother and everyone else on the raft had died. He survived. A pod of dolphins kept him alive, kept him afloat. He went to live with his uncle and aunt in Miami. But then the Cuban government uh, started claiming him and saying he should be sent back. Because the father he had never lived with, right, and never spent much time with, deserved to have him. And he deserved to have his father. You can imagine my rage. The very same government that prevented me from ever seeing my father and actually separated me from my mother for three and a half years. The very same government was now saying, every child deserves to be with his parents. So I went crazy. And I wrote the story of my childhood in Cuba, knowing as a historian that nothing works better than a first-person narrative. It gets you there. There's nothing better than that. But I wrote it as, I passed it off as fiction, as I've already mentioned. I sold it as fiction. But then my editor found out the truth and would not allow me to. And one of the things she said uh, struck me. Um, She said, if people don't have to ask, did this really happen? Then the book will have a much greater effect. And I, I had to agree reluctantly. The second memoir, Learning to Die in Miami, and the title of this talk and the main theme, is about my life in exile as an orphan. I bounced around a lot. First I went to one camp. My brother went to a different camp. Then he was taken in by one foster family. I was taken in by a different foster family. They were friends with each other, these two families, so we got to see each other about once a week when they forced us to go to church. And here's the real irony of this. Both families were Jewish. Right? And they forced us to go to church and gave us money to put in the collection plate. I thought I had it made when I ended up with a Jewish family. I said, I'll never have to go to church while I'm living. Great surprise. Right? They couldn't keep us. Then my brother and I were sent to basically a home for juvenile delinquents. This is the only place for us. And we spent nearly a year living in this horrible foster home. If you've read Learning to Die in Miami, you know how awful it was. Then we went to live with an uncle who had arrived at the last minute before the door was closed on people leaving from Cuba. And we spent two years with him. All along, right, It's not just accommodating to a new culture. It's becoming a teenager, growing up, 
all these things together. Why the title? Learning to Die in Miami. Actually, I think the, the title has, has cost me sales. It's a kind of a grim title. Anything with death in it. Uh, very funny. The American Association of Retired People, the AARP, showed great interest in my book at first. <laughs> they thought it was about old people going to Florida. Uh, so. uh, Florida does have uh, the, the highest number of handicapped parking spaces of any state and the most funeral homes of any state. So that's a logical conclusion to reach. What do I mean by learning to die? What I mean by learning to die is the fact that uh, as a child, I learned very early how to die and become someone else. How to die and be resurrected. And that's the main lesson of the book, is that all of us, not just children who were sent to another country by their parents, everyone, all of us, we have to learn to die repeatedly throughout our lives. All of you have died already at least once. You've died to childhood. You're no longer children. Right? Uh, now, sometimes the audience laughs. Sometimes the audience doesn't laugh. When you get married, you die. <laughs> when you have your first child, you die. You get your first job, you die. And you have to become another person. And what's the lesson in this? Well, the lesson's pretty simple. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is or your ethnic background. Everyone, every human being has to learn to die and be reborn constantly. For a Christian, uh, it has an added depth of meaning in two senses. Right? Uh, we, we continually have to die to that, that part of ourself that uh, doesn't want to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. We also have to face the fact that the central belief of the Christian faith is death and resurrection. Now, some of my students have the hardest time trying to figure out the, the illogical nature of Christian, central Christian teaching. That God became a human being and died a painful, shameful death. And that makes everything all right. So illogical, right? So illogical. But it can make sense in many ways. Chiefly, if you look at the death and resurrection of Jesus as a model for every human being. To self-sacrifice his obedience, and the fact that he's resurrected. And the promise that all Christians have of eternal life. There's one Christian theologian <clears throat> from the 5th century, Gregory of Nyssa, who, who had something amazing to say about afterlife. I also wrote a book entitled A Very Brief History of Eternity. And I got a lot of uh, unpleasant hate mail from diehard atheists who all said the idea of eternity was stupid. One of them actually said, you know, if there really is eternity and human beings uh, live forever, 
they'll eventually ex uh, exhaust all the resources in the cosmos. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense. It's stupid. Someone else wrote, say, in eternity, what do you do? Uh, after a while, you just get bored. Well, here's what Gregory of Nyssa had to say. He said, in the afterlife, human beings will keep growing and learning. It's an eternal growth process. It's an eternal process of moving on, improving, becoming better. And what Gregory of Nyssa said is, is since God is infinite, and we will become eternal in God's presence, there's no exhausting this resource, no exhausting it at all. It's forever. And we will keep growing. I like that, especially as a teacher, the idea that we'll keep growing and learning. I had one college professor in philosophy who once said something that struck me because it was so weird. Um, and he was a Jesuit priest and a professor. So he didn't feel any shame or, or reluctance to bring up religion and faith in class. But he told us, he said, <clears throat> you know, um, everything you learn here on earth carries with you to the eternal life. And the more you learn here, when you die, the closer you'll be to God because you already know all that stuff. He was basically rephrasing what a 13th century scholastic theologian had said, uh, who said, this is Hugh of St. Victor, who said, learn everything. Later you will see nothing is superfluous. So I like this idea of eternal growth. I like the idea of rebirth. It's wonderful to reinvent yourself. Sometimes it's painful, you have to, when you don't want to. Sometimes it's uh, painful, but it's good. It's good pain. Um, you know, what's an example of one of my, my many deaths? Actually, the Spanish title, when it was translated into Spanish, of learning to die in Miami, is totally different. In Spanish, it's Miami y mis mil muertes. Miami and my thousand deaths. I very quickly became Charles. Then I moved to the Midwest. Um, I remember buying my, my Converse All-Star sneakers for gym class. And the guy at the sporting goods store said, no, you can't be Carlos in this town. You have to be Charles. And by the way, nobody will call you Charles. You'll be Chuck. So I became Chuck. I went very quickly from Carlos to Charles to Charlie to Chuck. I had to deal with that. I liked it. I liked being another person. I liked that. That was not a painful one. Uh, a painful one is arriving at a huge public high school in Chicago and being told by the counselor that I couldn't enroll in honor courses because I was Latino and I belonged in all the dumb classes. He didn't use that word, but that's what he meant. I belonged in all the dumb classes with my fellow Latinos. Yeah, that, that was a hard day. But it's a good one. It's a good one. Adversity is good and it's wonderful. And what other lessons can we draw from learning to die? 
and from the 14,000 children who were sent here by their parents so that they could have a better life, freedom, and freedom of religion. Well, a lesson we can learn is how fortunate we are to live here now. We have many challenges that we face. The world is becoming increasingly ugly. We hear horrible news every day from the Middle East. Just last week, 21 Christians beheaded on the beach because they were Christians. Not because they were Egyptians, but because they were Christians. That's the world we face. We're very lucky. We're very fortunate. But one thing that I understand that most of you, if not perhaps all of you, if you were born here, definitely most of you, is how rare this is. How rare our freedom is. How precious. And how easily it can disappear. If we don't speak up, if we don't stand up for certain principles. You have to understand how this community here in Quincy is rare compared to the rest of the United States. You have to understand how the United States is rare compared to the rest of the world and how fortunate we all are to be here now, today. And thank God for the snow. I love snow. When I was a little kid, I wanted nothing more than to see snow. I wanted snow so much that I used to spend time sticking my head into the freezer in the kitchen. <laughs> and, and these are the old-style freezers. They used to get frost inside. Taking the frost out, feeling the frost in my hands. It's as close as I could get to snow. So I'm delighted by all this. The whole point uh, I mentioned in, in that preamble, that our lives are preordained. This is the theme of Waiting for Snow in Havana, which originally had a very different title that the publisher would not allow me to use. The title of that book, the original title, and the whole book is written around a title that no longer exists. The title was Kiss the Lizard Jesus. I said, Kiss the Lizard? Well, that's ugly. Jesus? That's even uglier. Uh, eventually, I proposed other titles, and they kept turning them down, so I got really mad. And I said, well, how about this? Because I knew they were trying to make my book an Oprah bestseller. I said, how about this title, Kiss My Butt Oprah? <laughs> yeah. And actually, the, the word was not butt. It was the other one. <laughs> they didn't like that one either. What's the point of that strange title, Kiss the Lizard Jesus? As a child, I hated lizards and reptiles even more than religion. And I killed lots of lizards. I was terrible. Embracing, kissing, what you loathe, what you think is awful is sometimes not just necessary and you have no choice, but sometimes it's the right choice to make. Because adversity and pain, when they come your way 
and you have no choice. You have to view them as part of a divine plan. Recipe for happiness, John Calvin had it down to a formula. You want to be happy? Accept everything that happens in your life as part of God's plan. And figure out what to do next with that plan. And be happy with it. Empty yourself out. Give yourself to others. Be a good person. And always, always keep in mind, you can always be a better person. You can always die again, be born again, and become an even better person. But embracing adversity is the key. Embracing it, learning to die. Learning to die and to be reborn. Right? And adversity can be good. You just heard that I, I've had a few rejections in my life. I just had a rejection uh, two weeks ago. Big one, too. I applied to... Uh, Yale has a program in London. And I applied to teach in that program. And I learned that I was turned down not just for next year, but the following year and the year after that. By that time, I'll be 67, so they'll probably reject me again for another three years. Why? I'm not sure. I was angry and disappointed for a couple days. But then I said, uh, learn from what you say in, in your books. Uh, learn what you say in occasions like this when I speak to a large audience. Be happy. It's all part of the plan. And, you know, I, I don't know if it will work for you. It certainly doesn't. The younger you are, the harder it is for it to work. But it worked for me. I'm happy I'm not going to London. You know, I'm, I'm delirious. I don't have to teach in London. I can stay here where we actually get snow. Uh, so, to um, bring things to a close. Thank God for the many deaths that you will go through. Thank God for the strength he will give you to be born again. Again, and again, and again. Eternally. Eternal growth. Now, Thomas Aquinas, 13th century theologian, one of my favorite uh, texts from Aquinas is in his Summa Contra Gentiles, where he, he, he deals with the resurrection. And if you've read Thomas Aquinas, you know he's always asking questions and then answering his own questions. One of the questions he asked was... Uh, Will we eat with our resurrected bodies? His answer was no. We'll still have a mouth and tongue. We'll be exactly the same, but you can't eat because in the eternal body will have eternal energy. And food gives you energy, right? So if you have an eternal body that has all the energy that it needs and you eat, you'll just become incredibly fat. That doesn't uh, make me want to be eternal. I'd like to have ice cream forever. But here's the point I'm leading to with this as a, as, a closing, as a closing point is that the eternity that you imagine for yourself will make a huge difference in your present. And being thankful for your situation 
And you don't have to be happy with a bad situation. That's not what I'm saying. You don't have to be happy about bad things when bad things happen. But you have to be grateful for the chance you have to learn something and to come out a different person, perhaps a better person. And um, that, that's my message for the day. Thank you all for your attention. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, story we have been able to hear today. We pray again your blessing upon Dr. Ayer and his family. Thank you for him having him willing to share with us today. And now as we go, whatever circumstances or situations we find ourselves in this day, may we be reminded that you are with us and that you journey with us and that your wills and plans for our lives are perfect. We pray these things now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace to love God and serve others.